Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for March 2015. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we have a look at the critical care literature that caught our eye in the last month. So let's start with the New England Journal of Medicine with the PROMISE trial, the third of the large early goal-directed therapy trials that we've been waiting for. So a brief recap, if you remember from the initial RIVERS single center study showing improved outcomes and survival with six hours of goal-directed therapy in the emergency department in severe sepsis. We then had the negative PROCESS US trial, which was a large RCT looking at early goal-directed therapy. We had the negative ARISE trial, again a large early goal-directed therapy RCT based in Australia and New Zealand. And now the third of these large RCTs, the PROMISE study, which is the UK version of early goal-directed therapy trials. So this RCT was performed in 56 hospitals in the UK and they randomised 1,260 patients with early septic shock, which was defined as within six hours, to standard care or early goal-directed therapy. Now, early goal-directed therapy was the six hours resuscitation protocol, including mixed venous catheters. They report that the groups were well-matched at baseline in terms of the intervention, the early goal-directed therapy group received more treatment early, that is, they had more IV fluids, vasoactive drugs, red cells. However, the early goal-directed therapy group got more red cells, but the standard group got more red cell volume, whatever that means. In terms of the primary outcome, the 90-day mortality was 29.5% in the early goal-directed therapy group compared to 29.2% in the standard group. That's a relative risk of 1.01, 95% confidence intervals of 0.85 to 1.2. The study was powered for a baseline mortality of 40%, not 29%, um, and they, it was based on a risk reduction of 20%. However, the authors note that it is unlikely that a greater than 15% decrease in risk was present based on the baseline mortality in this study. The secondary outcomes, the proportion of patients receiving advanced cardiovascular support and ICU length of stay were significantly greater in the early goal-directed therapy group. And there was no difference in all other secondary outcomes, including health-related quality of life serious adverse events. So in conclusion, early goal-directed therapy applied for the first six-hour period in septic shock did not improve outcomes in patients in the UK. So I think that's it for the large early goal-directed therapy trials. That's three big trials published in a year. Um, there will be a combined data analysis, uh, an individual patient meta-analysis because they harmonize their outcomes at the start of the trials and that may provide us with some really interesting sub-study or subgroup results. However, we do have three RCTs that are negative and don't support Rivers' result that early goal-directed therapy improves outcomes in severe sepsis 
and I think that's probably the final note on this. What have we learnt from this? Well, this is the end of a 15-year journey from when Rivers' study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine to now. And although these are negative trials, it's probably worth noting that this has led to a 15-year focus on sepsis, early recognition of sepsis, and improved overall outcomes in sepsis in a number of before and after studies where hospitals who had perhaps worse outcomes in sepsis than these large trials did improved their outcomes by introducing sepsis bundles. So although early goal-directed therapy is an intervention that doesn't improve outcomes in trials, perhaps a fit this 15-year journey has helped improve outcomes in sepsis and that might be a good thing. Sticking on sepsis and the New England Journal of Medicine, we have systemic inflammatory response syndrome criteria in defining severe sepsis. This was comes from the ANZICS Research Centre and ANZICS APD database. So the definition and classification of SERS, sepsis, severe sepsis and septic shock as a progression of disease severity was codified by the consensus statement of the American College of Chest Physicians and Society of Critical Care Medicine in 1992 and has been the predominant approach to classifying sepsis in research and audit. The validity and sensitivity of requiring two or more SERS criteria to meet the definition of sepsis has been questioned. This ANZICS APD study identified 110,000 patients with infection or organ failure admitted to 172 ICUs over 14 years. They categorised these patients as SERS positive severe sepsis or SERS negative severe sepsis depending on the presence or absence of two or more SERS criteria. They found that 87.9% of these patients had SERS positive severe sepsis and in that group, over the 14-year study period, mortality decreased from 36.1% to 18.3%. Remember, these are patients admitted to ICU with sepsis and organ failure. They found that 12.1% had SERS negative severe sepsis, that is they didn't have two criteria, and in that group the mortality decreased from 27.7% to 9.3% over the 14 year study period. The patients with SERS positive severe sepsis were younger, more severely ill, had a higher mortality as I've just reported, than those with SERS negative severe sepsis. They were also more likely to have septic shock or acute kidney injury, but less likely to have a surgical admission or to be discharged home. Over the 14-year period, the two groups showed a similar decrease in mortality, a pattern that remained after adjustment for baseline variables. The most common SERS criteria were heart rate, then respiratory rate CO2, then white cells. In the adjusted analysis, there was a 13% linear increase in mortality with each additional SERS criteria. 
So that is a 13% jump from 0 to 1, 1 to 2, 2 to 3, 3 to 4. And there was no threshold step increase in mortality when you went from 2 to 3 criteria. So, 1 in 8 patients with severe sepsis and organ dysfunction admitted to ICU are missed if the definition of 2 or more SERS criteria is used. Now, this group with severe sepsis and organ dysfunction and 0 or 1 criteria have reduced mortality compared to 2, 3 and 4, but they still have significant mortality associated with their infection. And there is no step increase in mortality at two criteria. So this challenges the validity and rationale of the rule that two or more SERS criteria are required for a definition of severe sepsis. Okay, sticking with the New England Journal of Medicine, we have age of transfused blood in critically ill adults. And this comes from the ABLE investigators from the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group. Red cell transfusions in critical illness are common. Recent evidence has suggested the storage lesion may be harmful in this population. A systematic review of 18 observational studies involving a total of 410,000 patients and three RCTs involving a total of 126 patients suggested that the transfusion of older red cells as compared with the newer red cells was associated with a 16% increase in the risk of death. However, a RCT in 100 ventilation patients did not find adverse consequences on oxygenation, immunological or coagulation profiles if red cell units were stored for a median of 4 days versus 26.5 days. If new blood is better than old blood for critically ill patients, it will lead to improved outcomes. It will also lead to changes in blood bank organisation. So there are big implications in getting this question right. So the ABLE study was a prospective multi-centre RCT performed in 64 centres in Canada and Europe that randomised 2,430 patients to fresh red cells versus standard issue red cells. They report that patients were enrolled if the first red cell transfusion occurred before day 7 in ICU and they were expected to receive invasive or non-invasive ventilation for the next 48 hours. At baseline, matching was good, so at randomization, 97.5% of patients were ventilated, had been in ICU for an average length of time of 2.4 days and had been in a hospital for 5 days. 60% were medical. The intervention was that they got leukodepleted saline adenine glucose mannitol additive solution red cells, either oldest or newest. They achieved treatment separation, so the storage time for the red cells was 6.1 days for the fresh and 22 days for standard, so a difference of 16 days. The primary outcome, which was 90-day mortality, was 37% in the fresh group, 35.3% in standard, with an absolute relative difference of 17%, 95% confidence intervals of minus 2.1 to 5.5 with a hazard ratio 
the death of 1.1. Secondary outcomes, no difference in duration of respiratory or hemodynamic or renal support, length of stay, transfusion reactions, or in subgroup analyses. So in conclusion, this large, well-conducted RCT of transfusion of fresh red cells versus standard issue red cells did not lead to a difference in 90-day mortality or any secondary outcomes in critical illness. Now we have the transfuse study, which is the Australian version of this study, underway, and it is halfway through enrolment. So within the next few years, we will have the definitive answer on old versus new blood. Let's stick with blood. And in the New England Journal of Medicine, we have a liberal or restrictive transfusion after cardiac surgery from the Teeter 2 investigators. This multi-center parallel group UK trial randomized 2007 adult patients having non-emergency cardiac surgery with a post-operative hemoglobin less than 9 grams per deciliter to restrictive transfusion threshold, which was an HB of less than 7.5 grams per deciliter, or a liberal transfusion threshold, HB of less than 9 grams per deciliter. They reported that baseline characteristics were similar. They achieved treatment separation, so the transfusion rates were 53.4% in the restrictive group versus 92.2% in the liberal group. The mean nadir hemoglobin was 1 gram per deciliter lower in the restrictive group and the median number of units transfused was 1 in restrictive versus 2 in liberal. The primary outcome of serious infection or ischemic event, and that was a composite of permanent stroke, AMI, gut infarct, acute kidney injury or serious infection, within three months was 35.1% in restrictive versus 33.0% in liberal. The odds ratio is 1.11, 95% confidence intervals 0.91 to 1.34. Mortality was 4.2% in the restrictive group versus 2.6% in the liberal group. Hazards ratio of 1.64, 95% confidence intervals of 1 to 2.67, p-value 0.045. Serious complications occurred in 30 35.7% of restrictive versus 34.2% in liberal, and there was no difference in total costs. So a restrictive threshold was not superior to a liberal threshold following elective surgery with regards to the primary outcome. There are possible benefits of a restrictive threshold in terms of fewer transfusions, but that would appear to be offset by the secondary analysis showing a mortality benefit with the liberal threshold. Now, because that's a secondary outcome, that the confidence intervals were 1.00 to 2.67, I suspect this is going to be a result that is debated in cardiac surgical centres and more broadly with regards to its application. So do you think that a mortality decrease from 4.2% to 2.6% achieved as a secondary outcome 
is enough to warrant adopting a transfusion trigger of nine following cardiac surgery. Let's move to the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine where we have the DARE study. This is the timing of discharge from ICU and subsequent mortality, a prospective multi-center study and it comes from John Santa Maria, Graham Duke, Dave Pilcher, Jamie Cooper, John Moran and Ronaldo Bilomo. Now this is going to be a controversial study. It has become mantra that discharge from ICU after hours is associated with increased mortality. The authors of this study have firmly challenged this by doing something the previous studies didn't do and they, that is they adjusted for severity of illness at discharge not admission and accounted for all other factors that is clustering etc. So as an introduction a systematic review of this issue revealed consistent results in the previous studies with a strong relationship between nighttime discharge and mortality. However they all showed nighttime discharge had higher severity of illness on entry into ICU but only one looked at severity of illness on discharge and that showed a negative relationship. Only one reported adjustment for clustering. Only two reported treatment limitations status at discharge from ICU and only two were prospective. Finally, the duration to death from ICU discharge of unexpected deaths was a median of 13.6 days after ICU discharge. Now that's a long time and it's hard to understand how the effects of nighttime discharge persist for so long. So the DARE study was a prospective 11,000 patient Australian-New Zealand study that collected a lot of data about pre-ICU, ICU, discharge from ICU, post-ICU, that is time to nursing and medical review, METs, etc. in Australian-New Zealand ICUs. They found that 16% of patients were discharged between 6pm and 8am and they were sicker at admission to ICU. They confirmed that nighttime discharge had higher hospital mortality, that is 7.4% versus 4.8% with a p-value of less than 0.001. But Univariate analysis shows that there are many admission and discharge factors associated with mortality. With only admission variables, the multivariate risk of death, their odds ratio were 1.32. When they adjusted for discharge factors, clustering, there was no association with, between nighttime discharge from ICU and mortality. The most significant factor is presence of a limitation of treatment disorder. So the odds ratio for presence of a limitation treatment disorder and mortality, the odds ratio is 35.4 with 95% confidence intervals of 27.5 or to 45.6. And in terms of secondary outcomes, there's no difference. So this tells us that time of discharge is not independently associated with mortality when a multivariate analysis including discharge characteristics is performed. 
the increased mortality observed is due to severity of illness at discharge and the presence of treatment limitations, not time of discharge. So the final points. This doesn't mean you should deliberately discharge patients at night. It does beg the question, why do we discharge sicker patients at night and patients with treatment limitations at night? Does this reflect that we have a much clearer process for discharging well elective patients to the wards during the day? Or does it suggest that there are processes around sicker patients and patients with treatment limitations that push them towards nocturnal discharge? Finally, if we kept the sicker patients longer, would they do better? Well, the authors tell us that premature discharge was uncommon suggesting that, that these were patients waiting to be discharged to the wards. Either way, this is going to generate a lot of discussion because it's challenging one of our beliefs. Okay, let's finish up with critical care evidence, new directions in JAMA. So this is a viewpoint article that discusses the issues confronting the next generation of critical care researchers. So the success of the ICU model has seen short-term mortality decrease markedly in recent decades, but the consequences of this are it is proving difficult to improve further. And we have a large cohort of survivors with health issues. The heterogeneous nature of ICU populations contributes to the difficulty in assessing new interventions, even in large-scale trials. So where next? The authors suggest new methods, study patients based on phenotype, develop approaches to research based on monitoring, data linkage, etc. Invest more in preclinical research models, better population identification, evolve the toolkit of molecular assays, gene mapping, biomarker profiling, precision phenotyping, and use these methods to identify, monitor, and encourage adaptive research and intervention processes, e.g. based on genetic polymorphism and immune response to sepsis big data linkage, novel study design, so adaptive design and intentional analysis for heterogeneous treatment effects, and examine the contribution of innate disease, individual predisposition and therapeutic intervention to chronic illness. Well, that's it for the Critique Journal Club March 2015. Come to the website and have a look around. Otherwise, I'll see you next month. Thank you.